Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Ruth Wishart. It's my very great pleasure to be chairing this session of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Now, I can't begin to tell you what an annoying man this afternoon's guest is. <laughs> All through his literary life, he's written a kind of eloquent, illuminating prose every other writer wishes they had written. All through his conversations and his interviews, he comes up with cultured epigrams everybody else wishes they could have thought of. But as they might observe in the terraces, on another part of this nation, there's only one McIlvany. <laughs> and indeed there is, so instead of grumbling, we have to cherish the talent of a man who brought us the depth of Doherty, the complexity of Laidlaw, the insightfulness of the kiln, a raft of elegant essays, thought-provoking poetry, and incisive journalism. You might call him an institution, except that there's absolutely nothing grey or square or dull about him. And happily, thanks to Canongate, the main body of his work is being introduced to another fortunate generation, and perhaps just as importantly in terms of his current account to an American readership as well. Please welcome Willie McIlvany. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to begin this afternoon's session with what we might call a world first. Mr. McIlvany is going to read to us from his own website. <laughs> Needless to say, he had nothing to do with making it, but a fine thing it is too, and he's going to introduce you to a passage from it, Willie. Thank you. Well, first of all, thanks for coming. It's terrific and amazing to see a crowd like this. So all, always kind of intimidates me slightly, because I think if like a football crowd they break in, Ruth and I haven't got a chance here. <laughs> and I've, I once said at an occasion like this, it reminds me, the size of the crowd, it reminds me of an old Bob Hope film I saw when I was a boy. As the usual crazy sort of plot, Bob inherited a small country in Africa. <laughs> and he got all this solar topia and all the gear on, and he flew out to see his domain and the plane pulled into a very kind of bleak airstrip and they put the stairs down and Bob came out with all the gear and stood on top of the stairs and you could see the trepidation in his eyes. He's very good at trepidation, Bob Hope. I think he spent his life feeling it. You could see it in his eyes and he looked because in front of him was a mass of natives. This is very un-PC but so were the times. A mass of natives with loincloths and spears and they were all beating the ground and making a colossal noise. And you could see Bob panicking, but he said, my people. Then he looked into the train and said, keep the engine running. <laughs> so Ruth, keep the engine running. We may need a quick getaway here. As Ruth says, I now amazingly enough have a website, which my nephew Neil McIlvany very kindly constructed for me. And I suppose it's a kind, meant to be a kind of autobiography of personal thoughts and feelings about everything from politics to personal experiences. And parts of it are a kind of, some of it is about politics and fairly long pieces. Some of it is very short. You'll be glad to hear it's one of the short ones I'm referring to today. <laughs> and it, I think this, the feeling that's expressed in this came to me as a kid when we had a a family with six not unnoticeable people in it, and aunties and uncles and cousins with their first girlfriend would come in and visit. And I listened to the stories as a kid, I'd be about 11 or something, and I thought, these are amazing people and what they've experienced is absolutely amazing. And I thought, I would like to write about the working class kind of life I come from, because to me, these kind of people, are the only, their history is things like Domesday Book and parish registers. And I thought I would like to write about not just the importance, but the value and the drama of these lives. And this piece is an attempt, I suppose, to hint at that, to hint at how marvelous those unheard of lives, those unwritten about lives really are. The piece is called Transformation of the Ordinary. 
The angels keep their ancient places. Turn but a stone and start a wing. Tis ye, tis your estranged faces that miss the many splendored thing. A failed priest and former opium addict, Francis Thompson was referring to a religious vision, one which concludes, and lo, Christ walking on the water, not of Gennesaret, but Thames. I love this poem, but I read it as a kind of secular hymn. I can't share the certainty of Thompson's religious faith, but I find the same kind of transformative experience simply in living life as it is here and now. I find a world probably without God even more inspiring and more amazing. That in an incomprehensible void, people can be generous and care for one another and be benign in the face of nothing that is certain is for me the truly awesome mystery. Sometimes the sheer amazingness of being alive is bypassed by our petty preoccupations. The triviality of our purposes can blind us to the wonder of where we are. But in odd moments, we may rediscover that wonder. I remember as a boy being alone in the living room of our council house in Kilmarnock. I would be maybe 11 years old. I was lying in front of the coal fire with my head resting on an armchair. It was, I think, late on a winter afternoon. The window had gone black and I hadn't put the light on. Enjoying the small cave of brightness and heat, the fire had hewn from the dark. Perhaps I was a far traveler resting by his campfire. Perhaps I was a knight keeping vigil for the dawn when wondrous deeds would be done. For I could be many people at that time, as I still can. Maybe controlled fantasy is everybody's natural habitat. And it's just that some of us lose the vulnerability to admit it, even to ourselves. We hardly go shopping without blessing the bread with half-formed thoughts of what else we might be doing. Without some vague sense of who might be eating it with us. Ghosts of the past, ghosts of the future, haunt our daily lives. I remember that ghost of me at my hearth of small butterfly dreams, but I don't know how I came to be alone at that time and in that place. In our house, with six not unnoticeable presences, it wasn't an easy trick to be alone, even without counting the cavalcade of aunties and uncles and cousins and friends who seemed to be constantly passing through. I wonder now if I had come home from school to find the house empty, but that seems improbable. My mother was a ferocious carer who had an almost mystical capacity to conjure solid worries out of air that to the rest of us looked untroubled and clear. Maybe somebody was supposed to be with me and had gone out briefly, I don't know. I am simply aware of myself there. The moment sits separate and vivid in my memory without explanation, like a rootless flower. Whoever I was being, traveler or night, I must have been tired, for I fell asleep. The awakening was strange. I think I must have been aware of the noise of people entering the house, one of those slow fuses of sound that sputteringly traverses the unconscious until it ignites into waking. My consciousness and the room came into the light together. My eyes were bruised with brightness. What I saw seems in retrospect to offer the shiningness of newly minted coins, all stamped unmistakably as genuine. Pure metal, the undepreciable currency of my life. What I saw, in fact, was pretty banal. My father had his hand on the light switch he had just pressed. My mother was beside him. They were both laughing at what must have been my startled eyes and my wonderment at being where I was. Around them was a room made instantly out of the dark. It was a very ordinary room, but it was wonderful. How strange the biscuit bar was where my mother kept her rent money. 
how unimaginable was the image of Robert Burns with the mouse painted on glass by my uncle. How incorrigibly itself the battered sideboard became. The room was full of amazing objects. They might as well have come from Pompeii. And at the center of them were two marvelously familiar strangers. I saw them not just as my mother and father. I knew suddenly how dark my father was, how physical his presence. His laughter filled the room, coming from a place that was his alone. My mother looked strangely young, coming in fresh-faced from the cold and darkness, her irises swallowing her pupils as she laughed in the shocking brightness. I felt an inordinate love for them, not as my parents particularly, just as people. I experienced the transformation of the ordinary into something powerfully mysterious. And later, I would write a short poem trying to express that feeling. In any street, an epic, any room, strange stories never told, testaments dumb, the richness overwhelms. A chance remark can touch new land and load another ark. Transactions of small change will sometimes yield coins of a minting you have never held. Break any casual stone and find strange veins. The colors blind. The anecdotes will range through wild geographies of spirit, form plain folk with unknown flowers in their arms. In each face, there are new horizons. Any day, an archeology span more rich than Troy. Thank you. Thank you, Willie. Let's just talk for a minute about the fact that um, the books will be republished, not just here in the States. I mean, the, the Laidlaw trilogy is out now, and mm -hmm. in, in January we're going to have Doherty and The Kiln and The Big Man. How important is that to you, not just in terms of your literary uh, reputation, but the fact that you might become a late developing plutocrat? <laughs> <coughs> well, I think the latter, it's too late for that. I mean, I think uh, I will say that Canongate saved my life financially, but I'm not a plutocrat yet. But it was, I just found it utterly amazing. For me, it's like, you know, one of those biblical resurrection scenes, you know. I think of it that way. And that woman called Jenny Brown spake unto Canongate. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, I know a dead author who would wish to be alive again. <laughs> and Kate Canongate spake unto that author. And Canongate said, Arise and be a writer again. And lo and behold, it came to pass. <laughs> For the writer arose and he said, okay, dokey, <laughs> that'll do me. Something like that, you know. And when the writer arose, did he feel any inclination to pick up a pen and start something else? Oh, don't get awkward now, I don't. <laughs> I'm just enjoying this. No, I mean, I've always written all my life frequently, blessedly for the public, words that nobody sees, but a book's got to kind of crystallize for me or I somehow don't commit myself to it. I mean, when I wrote Laidlaw, the publisher said, write one of these a year and you will become a millionaire. I sometimes lie in bed at night and think, my God, <laughs> what a chance I missed there. But I just couldn't do it. I said to him, I can't, I can't write to my own order, never mind yours. But to get back to what you were asking, Ruth, since this amazing resurrection job, I've been, I begin with morasses of notes. So I've got a lot of notes for further laid law. I mean, I'd like to write two books, one a prequel and one a sequel. The sequel is going to be hard because I did a, an audio version of laid law. And that means you have to read it sentence by sentence. And I suddenly realized, Christ, this is a historical novel. It's been so long. I mean, the, the changes since the 70s till now are stunning in our society. Small changes, like there's a scene in Laidlaw where they go into the bus and there's a conductor there. 
whoever heard the conductors now? We don't get that. And the pubs shut at 2.30. And you think, and beyond those small incidental social changes, there are huge ones like the internet, cell phone. I mean, these are, Laidlaw would be completely lost in that. So if I bring him back, he's, you know, in a later book, he's got to be a fairly puzzled man. But I can do that easily because I'm puzzled. <laughs> I'm puzzled myself. It's not just uh, what's roundabout, it's changed, of course. I mean, the whole business of policing has changed and the idea that you could have this kind of, you know, this uh, working class guy, this autodidact, this um, man mm. who ploughs his own fur, that wouldn't work. Um, no, I mean, although I, certainly when I was writing Laidlaw, obviously I've spoke to quite a few policemen to research it. And I've found there were people like Laidlaw, whether you would still find them, I don't know. I suppose it, so much of it is mechanised now. And Laidlaw is essentially a street man. He goes, he knows from the streets what's happening. And that's really, you know, where he lives. But uh, I, I would hope there are still detectives who might occasionally read Camus and things like that. I can't vouch for it, but I would hope, because I, a couple of journalists took me to task when the book came out and said, you know, a Glasgow policeman who reads Camus. And I said, ah, I, I believe that's possible. And I knew the man who was Charlie, the man who was head of the crime squad at that time, and I told him about this. He said, Willie, I've been trying to write poetry all my life, but don't tell anybody. <laughs> so you get policemen who diverge into these areas. You know. They just care for who they admit it to. Absolutely, absolutely. You said once, Willie, was one of these quotes that always, you know, runs around your head that you, um, you know, you were very grateful for what you already had written, but you were still haunted by what you hadn't written. And I wondered how many of these ghosts are still wandering around. Oh, um, the house is polluted with them, my dear. You can't turn without bumping into them. No, I mean, I, I think that um, I still am much haunted. In fact, one of the reasons for the the website, and it maybe it sounds a crazy idea, and it possibly is a crazy idea. I've got all of this stuff, I've been making notes since I was 17, sometimes in a kind of alarming way. I remember sitting in the Glasgow University reading room with a friend, Frank Donnelly, and he was studying history, and I was reading King Lear for the first time. And at the end of it, I burst out laughing. And Frank got a bit worried. He said, what are you reading? I said, King Lear, you know. It's always good for a laugh. It's a Shakespearean tragedy. And what I was laughing at was just the astonishing moment at the end of Lear where he says, you can through all this, and he says to somebody, pretty undo this button. And I love that, how no matter what you go through, you become that kind of normal person, that you, you cannot lose the normality of your humanity. And I just... That, that's always been something that fascinated me, and I've lost the point entirely. What was it you were talking about? <laughs> I blather away sometimes, sorry. I know that you've um, confessed, Mr. McIlvany, that you don't really read crime. You write it, but you don't read it. Yeah. And of course, there's a whole new generation of Scottish crime writers who are, you know, for, for whom you're the godfather. Um, what is it about other people's crime you don't like? No. <laughs> what? See, that's a real question, isn't it? Whichever way you turn your spear. No, I mean, I, I just never read much crime fiction. I read Fall of Chandler. And uh, the reason I wrote it, this is, I'm explaining why I don't have a great knowledge of crime fiction. The reason I wrote Laidlaw was not that I said I will now write a crime novel. I heard the voice, sounds a bit like Joan of Arc, but I heard the voice. I'd finished Doherty and I'd been. It was all about the first quarter of the 20th century and I was at kind of contemporary starvation. I wanted to write a bit now. And I heard the voice and it was saying very abrasive things and I noted it down. And uh, you know, I thought he's, he's a bit of a hard case. He's, he's a good guy, but he doesn't suffer fools. He's a very abrasive man. And he's obviously going to bad places. And so I thought, he's got to be a detective. And then I thought, I've always, I mean, I'm a convert to Glasgow. People gave me a hard time when I came up here from Ayrshire and wrote about Glasgow, and they had said things like, comes up here with his big Kilmarnock bonnet, <laughs> trying to tell us about Glasgow, and I thought, Chris, it's 20 miles away. <laughs> Give us a break here. And so it, 
all of these things gelled and I thought it's got to be a, a detective novel about Glasgow. And I remember Gore Vidal has a terrific thing he says in one of his essays. He says, we should colonize the genre. And if I understand him, what he's saying is there is a genre that people read. Don't be hoity-toity, go where the readers are and inform it with as much truth and life as you can. And I thought that was a terrific idea. I also thought with a thriller you've got a, a lot of people like it, you've got a captive audience and you can do something that John Keats did a marvellous thing once. He said, when you write, you should load the drifts with ore. And I thought, you could do that with Detective Novel. You've got, a, hopefully, a plot that will hook them. And you can try to give them observations about life, philosophy, anything you want along the way. And all of that congealed. And that's why I wanted to write a laid law. And it's also why, uh, to answer your question, Ruth, that I, I just hadn't read. And I'm glad I hadn't read much fiction, because I didn't really know what the strictures were or what the rules were. So I you made them up as you went along? I did, <laughs> absolutely. Well, we are actually going to have a, a reading from the, the Laidlaw trilogy, but just for a change rather than the author, we thought we'd just pick somebody randomly from the audience. I hope, um, he's, I hope he's good at it, though. Well, we'll find out in a minute or two, but um, this is also another kind of godfather. He's godfather, in fact, uh, to the most eagerly awaited baby uh, this year. I'm referring, of course, to Chan Chan's hopeful pregnancy. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> He does have quite an important day job, but he's allowed time off for good behaviour during the parliamentary recess. Will you please welcome the First Minister of Scotland, Alex Salmond. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Willie's chosen a, a passage uh, for me to, to, to read. He, he told me earlier on he, he chose it because there's no sweary words in it. <laughs> because it would be unfitting for a First Minister to read out sweary words. So that obviously limited the choice. <laughs> but uh, this is a, a passage from the, uh, the papers of Tony Veach uh, for the affectionados among us, and I'm sure there's... Sorry to interrupt, can I just... Yeah? Explain? This won't be understandable unless I explain two things. Sorry, is this gone dead? Can you hear that? Yes. You have to understand two things about this. One is it's a summit meeting between two groups of Glasgow heavies. One and what a member of one group has gone into a pub belonging to the other, and in an act of bravado, ordered a pint without paying for it, and poured it over a harmless young man's head just to establish his status there. And there's been quarrels between the two. One other thing, there is a mention at the end of this sequence to the thing called a fishtail. I better explain this very quickly. When I was going to the dancing in Kilmarnock in the Grand Hall when, in my teens, a fishtail was a very intricate step you did during the quick step. So when the fishtail is mentioned, realize he's talking about a quick step. Sorry, Alec, go ahead. Oh, I understand it at last. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, this is from the, the papers of Tony Veach. Uh, uh, as you'll remember, this is the book that started with a line, it is Glasgow on a Friday night the city of the stare. And it's fair to say there's a fair amount of staring goes on in this passage, but no sweary words. The Coronach was still a drinking hotel, but quieter, especially on Sundays. To ask for a room there was as naive as expecting to meet Calpurnia in Caesar's palace. The only acknowledgement of hospitality to go beyond the dispensing of drink was the function suite. It was called the Rob Roy Room which meant that the carpet was McGregor tartan and there were a couple of tars on the walls, framed in cross claymores. Today its occupants were outlaws, but unromanticised by time. When Macy ushered in John Rhodes, Hook Hawkins and Dave McMaster, Cam Colvin was already installed. Two of the small tables had been placed together with chairs around. Cam sat at the head of one of the tables, sedate as a committee man. John Rhodes and he were a conjunction of contrasting styles, like a meeting between shop floor and management. Cam was conservative in a dark striped suit and black shoes, as shiny as dancing pumps. The shirt was demurely striped and the tie was navy. John looked as if his tailor might be Oxfam. 
The light brown suit was rumpled, the shirt was open-necked, he was wearing a purple cardigan. Cam registered nothing when John Rhodes came in, but the fuse was already lit in John's blue eyes. And he nodded, Cam and he nodded at each other. Cam indicated the man who was sitting on his right. This is Dan Tomlinson, he said, he's the manager. Dan Tomlinson was a thin man in his 50s. He looked worried as if he couldn't remember whether the hotel insurance was up to date. Mickey Balliter was standing nearby and nodded. The only other man in the room who'd been trying to stare down the one-armed bandit beside the small bar ambled across to join them. Oh, John Rhodes said, and Panda Patterson. Correct, John, your memory's good, Panda said. He extended his hand to shake, and John Rhodes punched him in the mouth. It was a short punch, very quick, very measured, costing John nothing. The punch of a man in training, emerging from reflexes so honed that they seemed to contain a homing device. It was only after it had landed you realised it had been thrown. It imparted awe to some of the others as if thought was fait accompli. The effect was reminiscent of the moment in a Hollywood musical when the mundane breaks into a Busby Barclay routine. Suddenly Panda Patterson was dancing. He moved dramatically onto the small slippery square of dance floor and did an intricate back step. Then extending his improvisation into what could have been the novice skater, he went down with his arms waving and slid sitting until the carpet jarred him backwards and his head hit a radiator like a duff note on a xylophone. That's the price of a pint in the crib, John Rhodes said. There was blood coming out of Panda's mouth. He eased himself off as to get up and then settled back, touching his mouth gently. You've made a wise decision, John Rhodes said, watching him refuse to get up. You're right. I've got a good memory. I don't know where you've been lately, watching cowboy pictures. Well, it's different here. Whoever's been kidding you, you were hard. I'm here to tell you I've known you a long time. You were rubbish then, and you're rubbish now. Frightening wee boys. Try that again, I'll shove the pint dish up your arse. One way a handle. If you could have bottled the atmosphere, it would have made Molotov cocktails. <laughs> Practice and survival, Macy was analysing the ingredients. John Rhodes stood very still, still having made his declaration. What was most frightening about him was the realisation that what had happened was an act of measured containment for him, had merely put down the notion for the real thing. He wasn't just a user of violence, he truly loved it. It was where he happened most fully, a thrilling edge. Like a poet who has a go at an epic, he no longer indulged himself in the doggerel of casual fights, but when, as now, the situation seemed big enough, his resistance was very low. The others, like Panda Patterson, were imitating furniture. This wasn't really about them. Even Panda had been incidental, no more than the paper on which John had neatly imprinted his message. The message was addressed to Cam Colvin. Macy understood how even at the moment of its impact, John's anger had maintained a certain subtlety. Neither he nor Cam needed confrontation. People could die of that. John had repaid an oblique insult. The move was Cam's. He took his time. His eyes sustained the preoccupied focus they usually had as if the rest of the world was an irrelevant noise over his shoulder. He seemed so impervious to outside pressure. Macy felt he could have rolled a fag on a switchback railway. He looked up directly at John Rhodes. You'll need to work on your fishtail, Panda. It's rubbish. Thank Does you. that arse count as a sweary word? <laughs> only, only in Edinburgh. I saw it coming. <laughs> the mildest one I could find, though. It's, uh, it's odd how pandas keep coming back into your life, isn't it? Um, <laughs> you and uh, you and Laidlow actually go back a fair way, don't you? Well, I, I was telling Willie uh, earlier on that uh, I blame him, if that's the right word, for my life in politics. Because uh, I applied when I, when I left university, I applied for a job with the BBC. And during the interview, uh, which was in 1978, they, they asked me what my favourite book was. <laughs> and I said, Laidlaw, because I'd just read it. 
And uh, I realised immediately I'd said the wrong thing. It wasn't impressing the interview panel. You know, one guy had never heard of it. Didn't he come here for bad reviews? <laughs> <laughs> and the, the, other, the other chap asked me what it was about, and I said, it's about a Glasgow detective. It's a crime novel. And he was going, oh, really? And I said, no, no, this is a really different type of crime novel. And of course, because of the attitude they struck up, I was totally thrown about it. So I spent the next whatever when I tell them that it was the greatest book that had ever been written. And if they didn't appreciate it, it served them right and you stuffed see, their job you up. See where there. it got you, yeah, like Swear it was. So anyway, I didn't get the job. So I went in for politics. It's all downhill from there. It was. <laughs> I, recall you, I recall you saying, Willie, once that um, if, you, if you ever meet anybody visited by certainty, then you've met an idiot. So where do you think that leaves politicians and popes and ayatollahs? And <laughs> I think I'll just go here. This is a setup, isn't it? Yeah. No, I mean, I think uh, politicians, with very honourable exceptions, are usually not my favourite people, you know. Because I think they have to profess a certainty which the rest of us don't have to pretend to. And I suppose I'm especially disenchanted with politics, and it's not to you, Alec, it's just a general observation, and that I really believed when we got the parliament that a lot of socialist principles would surface in Scotland. But the truth is, the Labour Party is now dead in the water, so that we voted Labour for generations. When we got the parliament, there is no Labour Party. So I'm deeply disillusioned, but I hope that the SNP take over that role. Because to me, British politics have degenerated into just being a management system, uh, and Labour will manage, they say, a bit more benignly than the Conservatives. But nobody's, it seems to me, still haunted by some kind of social idealism, which I think politics should really be about, whereby you don't just run the country, you try to make it fairer, you try to make it more just. And that's, you know, that's where my present dismay at politics resides, and it's essentially a dismay with British politics which we hopefully were, Scotland can change. Sorry, we were having this conversation yesterday um, <laughs> in another context about the fact that Scotland had a bit of a conceit of itself with regard to a communitarianism that wasn't necessarily available elsewhere in the United Kingdom. Is that a conceit? And could you answer that question without it being a party political broadcast? <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious, I mean, it's because it's, yes. it's a cross. Thank you. Yes, I could. Thank you. <laughs> I, I think it is a conceit, and I think it's a good conceit. Uh, it's a true conceit. I mean, Scotland you know, has many, many faults, uh, but uh, I think a, a common I, communitarian identity, uh, a belief in society, if we put the exact contrast between what Margaret Thatcher was re reputed to have said all these years ago, certainly what she meant. You know, there's no such thing as society. Well, I don't, I don't think uh, right across the political spectrum in Scotland, anybody seriously believes or would enunciate that. So it is a conceit, certainly, but it's a good conceit and it's a right conceit to have. Uh, I, uh, and I think a number of things the Parliament has done have demonstrated that. And the Parliament's, you know, the free personal care, free prescriptions, the, are about the collective provision of things which are really important. You know, tuition fees. I mean, it's really important that, that people get educated. That's a, a good conceit for Scotland to have. Uh, and I think it's a nice counterbalance to the many faults we've got. I think that's true. I think that I once said when we were in Edinburgh that time trying to establish the Parliament and Major and Company were in Edinburgh discussing European issues. And I thought, I remember saying, if we had a, a national motto, it wouldn't be Wodor medal with me. It'd be, oh, wait a minute, that's no fair. That's no fair. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that. That's all you need, that's no fair. I was, uh, I was, I was on, uh, we're on a bus. We, we spoke from a bus in, in the meadows, Aye. and I, I spoke just after Willie, and, and Willie made this amazing speech, uh, not just the, it's no fair, he, he described the, the 25,000 people there as the walls of Sparta. He <laughs> said, you know, in ancient times, Sparta's no city walls, you are the walls of Sparta. And I tell you, all these folk were looking at each other going, we are the walls of Sparta. <laughs>
And, and I'm standing there thinking, I'm going next. <laughs> <laughs> It wouldn't have been like that yeah, in Glasgow. A big Green. fella said to me, a big fella, just keep telling us. That was the way I said to him, keep telling us. <laughs> of course, you, uh, I seem to remember, said that Mrs. Thatcher was a woman who kept her horizons in her purse. That's right. <laughs> One of my more accurate observations. <laughs> Listen, when we've got both of you captive here, we've got to let the audience loose on you. Could we have some lights up, please? God, it is a big crowd, isn't it? <laughs> Now, I wasn't borrowing Willie's watch to tell him the time, but I can see the clock now, so you can have it back. Okay. <laughs> Could we have questions? And there's, there's, there's two mics here, so would you wait till one of them gets you before you speak? Who's going to start us off? Now, there we go, lady in the middle. To either or both of our gentlemen. Um, to, uh, or, or you, you yourself, um, I just wondered how you see September the 19th the polls say that uh, next year, the polls say that uh, Scotland's likely to vote. No, what kind of percentage of yes do you think we need for things to feel okay on September 19th, 2014? Well, that's well, the day after, of course. Yeah. Yeah. That's a question for a politician, that, you know. I think it's a question for both of you. But let's start with the politician. I'm no, I'm no idea. Well, what kind of percentage? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm with Harold Wilson. Now. Referendum, you go for 50% plus one. That's, that's, that, that's the aim and objective of a referendum. I mean, all politicians, I mean, you know, you get asked in elections, you know, what, uh, who would you like to vote for? You, and you say everybody. Because obviously you're trying to convince everybody. But to, to win a referendum, you need 50% plus one. And believe me, Scotland will feel a very different place on September the 19th. I'll be quite relieved, incidentally. You know, I've got to say that on the 19th of September. But opinion polls, well, I mean, we were roughly, what, 15, 20% behind in opinion polls three months before the Scottish elections in 2011. And the last time I checked, I was still... I was still First Minister. It's not, it's not opinion polls don't matter. What matters is how you conduct the arguments. And there's two things we've got to do over the next year to, to win the argument. You win the argument, you'll win the referendum. One is, well, actually Willie touched on it. It's about a vision, about the type of uh, Scotland, the type of Scotland we seek, what we're trying to achieve. And the second, it's quite nuanced, is to get across the, the idea of choice, that you know, this is about Scotland choosing its future. It's not about Alex Salmon's vision or Willie McIlvany's vision or, or any individual's vision. This is about the right to choose. You know, I, I'm 58 years old and uh, I know you're all thinking I don't look at it. I know you're all definitely thinking <laughs> that. But uh, two-thirds of my life, Scotland has not chosen the government they voted for. We've had a different government than the one we voted for. That's, a, that's an appalling, appalling percentage. So independence is about the right to choose and the confidence that that choice will be the right one for Scotland. And get across simultaneously a vision of the future, painting that picture, and secondly, getting across the fact that this is not about one party or one person's vision. This is about the country, the people, having the right to choose their own future. These are the, the two ingredients let, let me, to win the argument. Let me bring William here because, I mean, you had your Walls of Sparta moment over devolution. You were absolutely gung-ho about devolution. You've been quite coy about no, to tell you what, I've been, I um, was never coy, my darling, no. No. I've just, no, i am not been coy now, it's just that I know how I'm going to vote, and I was, we, as Alex says, that last time we, we went round on a bus, uh, you know, Willie Storer, it was, it was great, and all I said I want to do is to convince people, as Alex saying there, that you have to vote. I know how I'm going to vote, but I also think it's a dangerous vote. I mean, I would like Scotland to have control of its own destiny. But I think of examples like, where was it, Brazil in 2002. They voted in a left-wing administration for the first time in their history. And three months after they were installed in office, one of the governments said publicly, we are in government but we are not in power. Because multinationals, within three months, pulled $6 billion out of the country. So they didn't have the money to implement the socialist policies they wanted to implement. And I think what that means is, it's a very strange world we live in now. I think it's like the world is like a monopoly board for, you know, multi-finance. They just, they can control destinies of countries by that. 
So what I'm saying is we should realise how big the issue is we're up against. But personally, I would still take that chance because the other chance is you're still going to have to deal with that through a government that seems to me to have no vision left whatsoever. So it's like a Scottish moment for me, Glasgow, come ahead, you know. <laughs> we might not win, but we're going to have a go here. And I think it's, I can understand people's hesitation or wishing to vote the other way, but having thought it through as well as I can, I would rather take the chance of being a small country dealing directly with that kind of monstrous juggernaut of finance rather than doing it indirectly through a government which I think will surrender and kowtow to them any time. Thank you. I'm not sure you're allowed to jump the queue, Mr Barley, but as you've stolen the mic... I've stolen the mic. Um, I'm sorry for <coughs> jumping in. A question for both of you. How can you ensure, whether it's a yes or a no after, after next September, that the, this country is not riven by divisiveness? That it's, that it's not a divided nation after the vote? I don't think you can. But I think we're, div we're divided enough now, I think we would have to handle that. I mean, I, I think it, I can't imagine if it's a majority that the, any subsequent bitterness on either side could carry on for very long if it's a significant majority. And I mean, you, you had that with, you've had that with any government. It seems to me not an issue that is special to our situation at the moment or to the nature of Scotland at the moment. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I mean trust the ballot box. This is, uh, we've tried to arrange, you know, we've got an agreed framework which incidentally is a really important thing. Uh, I mean, we almost sort of say, oh, well, we're having a referendum and you know, it's been agreed and everybody's going to accept the results you know, in terms of the Edinburgh Agreement as if that was obvious and just normally the thing that happens. Actually, in the world, that's actually quite a rare and precious thing to actually have a, an organised democratic route by which self-determination can be achieved. Uh, and we should celebrate that. That's a, and that's your know, credit, incidentally, in that respect to both governments in terms of arranging that for that to happen. That's a proper expression. So we should actually be quite confident having, I mean, obviously there's going to be lots of things said in the campaign, but then that's what happens in political campaigns. And by and large, people have got the noose to, to separate the wheat from the chaff, to, to separate the, the nonsense from the sense, to, to separate what's really about the future. Uh, and, and that's what certainly what I intend to do in this referendum campaign. I, I lost lots of elections in my life, uh, not kind of personal constituency ones, but national elections. I, I lost lots and lots of elections and then uh, it took me a while to realise what I was doing wrong. <laughs> but once I did, it uh, makes a hell of a difference. And basically it's about concentrate, you know, over and above the political argy-bargy, concentrate on what you're trying to achieve. You know, concentrate on the positive, because at the end of the day, the positive will always trump the negative. More questions? Yes, two, three there. You can just do it in turn. Thank you. Somebody in, somebody in the aisle first. Yep. Um, one thing which worries me in uh, advance of next year is if, although probably everybody here is interested in the question and will vote, what happens if as so often in the past, there's actually just a very low turnout and then a small majority of a very low turnout. That seems to me one of the very worrying things that could happen. Although I didn't like the reasons for the original devolution vote making a, a minimum majority, um, what would happen, what would happen if you have a very, very low turnout with a small majority could I just interject here because I, and remind ourselves that we're here. Um, so it's perfectly happy to have political questions, and I know it's very seductive when you get the first minister trapped in front of you. But it, but we have but we have got to have questions about Willie's work. I was actually going to raise that I paid my money to hear William McElvaney and not Alex Salmon. Um, it's 
King Alec really doesn't interest me, but the works were like well, Galvani We're also does. not here to insult the First Minister, so... Um, you wrote a Doherty and the Killing. Is there any chance that we would have the grandson of Doherty? Uh, I, I hope to write, but I mean, I'm always hesitant to say that, because 10 years from now, if I'm still alive, you might say, well, I thought you said once. But I would hope to write a final, because I, I wanted the Doherty books to be a trilogy. And I suppose, maybe misguidedly, I thought I could use the internet, the website and that, partly to clarify the material I want to use in, in the final Doherty, which is, you know, going to take us up till, well, till I die, I suppose, <laughs> if I can foresee that. So, yeah, there is a third Doherty in the pipeline, but it's one hell of a long pipeline. <laughs> And where in the chronology do we get, I mean, is the, is the final, the third Doherty before or after the Laidlaw sequel prequel? Oh, for God. <laughs> Wait a minute, Mrs. I'm, no, I mean, I, the, the third Doherty is hopefully going to be written before I die, and it will take us up to the, certainly into the 21st century. The Laidlaw prequel's going to be, I'm quite happy with that, it's the 70s, which I know something about, but the, the sequel will be probably in the 90s. Okay, thanks for that. More questions, please? There's somebody else who just beside you, seeing the mics there. We might just go for that. Thank you. Hello. I'm, I've only just recently read all of your books, and um, one of the things that I've really enjoyed about them is the metaphors and similes. But I also noticed that you have a tendency to invert popular expressions, and one of the ones that I noticed was um, I think it might have been about Dave McMaster. He hid his bushel under a light. And I was, <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I was wondering what? if you ha have any favourites. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, I suppose any writer wants as far as possible to avoid cliché. And I love writing with metaphor and simile because I think it makes the thing concrete. If you just vanish into your head, it gets a bit ethereal. And one thing I love about just what you've said is that it's great to take a cliche and a stand it on its head and give it a wee bit different kind of life, that's all. But all of these, the, the texture of the prose, whether you think it's good or bad, is absolutely crucial to me that it should be your voice talking. And I suppose I this is going to sound terrible, don't misunderstand it. Since my favourite writer is Shakespeare, since I think he's the best writer who ever breathed, and I suspect will ever breathe, I take it as a kind of licence for me, because he, I think he writes beautifully in imagery. And in my more proletarian way, <laughs> I suppose I was trying to do the same too. Because I think there should be several things happening in a book, and one should be, I think, the vigour of the language, that the language should give you something. And there's other things, the sense of character, you know, description of place, all that. But I think, for me, the words have always been the first point of engagement in reading anything, that the words sound as if they come from an individual person. We've just had an event just immediately prior to this, a tribute to uh, Gavin Wallace, who was uh, a director of literature at uh, Creative Scotland oh, before his untimely yeah, death. And he made the point um, he made the point that we now had a rich theme of literature in all three Scottish languages, and that's, you know, that's something that one couldn't have thought of 30 years ago when the book festival first emerged. Well, there's also, I mean, if you take the, the Laidlaw books, the, the narrative is in English, but the dialogue is often in Scots, which is a really interesting choice. But I wonder what the lady said there about the, uh, the amount of similes. I mean, if you, if you take that one, that passage I read out, the, the bit, uh, the boy, his head hitting the radiator like a duff note in a xylophone. Mm -hmm. Now, every passage has lots and lots of these phrases. Mm -hmm. So, Willie, do you ever think, you know, that you're kind of, wasting too many of these brilliant phrases on one passage, because I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. What you really mean is, do, you, do I think I was overwriting? Is that well, it? <laughs> I may be guilty of that, Alec, but, from time to time. But, you know, the, Can I do this? the, the, folk, the folk here with the, I mean, two more Laidlaw books, 
10 more Laid Law books, you know, the one a year <laughs> idea would have been absolutely fabulous. But these are, I don't know of any passage which has that number of great phrases within it. Well, you might be about to find out um, because Willie's going to finish off this session with, right. with another reading and you're going to have to set the scene for, it, for us, Willie. Right, I shall do. Uh, this, is, uh, this is another piece from the, the website because I suppose what the website tries to do, it tries to reflect politics, it tries to reflect, reflect strange changes in society. And I've been around this place for a while, so I've seen a few of those. This piece is called Zoistry. Zoistry, the dictionary says, is the worship of animals as the incarnation of certain deities or extreme or excessive devotion to animals, particularly household pets. This is Zoistry. I once visited a man, once was enough, who lived with a Doberman that was a terrible bully. The man was nice, but he seemed to think that the dog was the householder. So did the dog. <laughs> I'll call it Snarl to protect its identity, <laughs> although I don't see why I should. It seemed to control, and this is, this is all true. I did not make this up. It seemed to control more or less everything that happened in the house. It padded about among the conversation as if it were working for the thought police, staring disconcertingly at anyone who was talking. I suspected that it was terrifically stupid, but I didn't mention that, just in case it wasn't as dumb as I thought. <laughs> Two words it definitely did understand were cheerio and goodbye. People who carelessly mentioned one of these words would be immediately pinned to their chair or against a wall if they were standing, while Snarl growled, growled ominously at them and showed a set of upper teeth that would not have been out of place in an alligator's mouth. I think it was trying to express in canine language something like, so you don't like my company, eh? People who wanted to leave, which, which I would think was pretty well everybody who ever came to the house, would have to work out their own discrete formula for getting out. I have a certain predilection for departure someone might say, or, ah well, parting is such sweet sorrow. <laughs> that way Snarl didn't know what the hell they were talking about. <laughs> they could drift casually towards the hall, still talking, and then make a sudden break for the outside door. Feeling a need to visit the lavatory, I asked my host where it was. He explained, and then added in a very quiet voice, don't shut the door of the toilet. Snarl hates closed doors. I explained to him in an equally quiet voice that Snarl would just have to cope. Since I didn't intend to expose such tackle as I had to the dental whims of a megalomaniac Doberman, I was relieved to relieve myself without the repeated sound of a heavy body thudding against the bathroom door. I don't go to the pub anymore, the man said in my return. Snarl doesn't like it. <laughs> that was my cue to talk of tactical withdrawals and visitations which must be over all too soon. Snarl knew I was saying something, but he'd be damned if he knew what it was. I left, wondering why the man didn't just buy Snarl a twin set in pearls and marry it. <laughs> the memory of this came unbidden into my mind when I read recently in the papers that beaches for dogs are one of the latest crazies. I realized how that far off occasion had been a harbinger of a progressive tendency in our society, treating dogs as people. Read my snarling lips. Animals are animals. <laughs> Yet these days we have canine psychiatrists. I have my misgivings about the effectiveness of human psychiatry but at least the clients can tell you whether they feel better for it or not. <laughs> how are you supposed to tell if a neurotic dog feels it has benefited from its treatment? Does it bite you more gently? <laughs> or bark in a saner key? And now beaches for dogs. I'm all for dogs enjoying themselves, 
But are we sure that is what they will do on a sweltering seashore? After all, ask yourself how many people put on a fur coat to go to the beach, unless they live in Scotland, of course. <laughs> Yet two of the prototypes for these beaches are at Macarese and Fregeni, outside Rome. The dogs are provided with umbrellas, showers, and meals in restaurants. The despair I feel about all of this has nothing to do with disliking dogs. It's the dog owners I'm worried about. I've been a dog lover all my life. I had no choice. My father had dogs. If that makes it sound like a disease, that's probably fair enough. I don't ever remember him actually buying a dog. It just seemed that every so often, he developed a dog. <laughs> I remember he and my mother came home at half past 10 one night from the pictures with a smooth-haired fox terrier. It had followed them when they got off the bus, my father said. I believe him. He had an uncanny rapport with animals of all kinds. Dogs did sometimes follow him home. Jackie was one. It followed him home and stayed the night. It was returned to its owners and then came back to our house the same night. This happened so often that the owners told my father to keep it, since it had obviously decided where it wanted to live. That was Jackie. You didn't decide Jackie was your dog. Jackie decided you were his human. Jackie was a brown and white mongrel with a coat so rough and dull-fitting, he looked as if he had borrowed it from a bigger dog and hadn't had the alterations done yet. He would be lucky if he stood a foot high, but nobody had told him that. He thought Alsatians were a pushover. In case that fact gives you the wrong impression, Jackie was also the most intelligent dog I have ever seen. I kid you not, this was Wittgenstein with a tail. <laughs> Small example, Jackie used to travel everywhere on the bus by himself. He simply jumped aboard and lay in the space under the stairs he used to have in the old buses and got off at his stop. A neighbor once heard a passenger inform the conductress that there was an unaccompanied dog in this bus. Aye, the conductress said, that dog always gets this bus. <laughs> Never been known to pay a fare yet either. <laughs> when Jackie went shopping with my mother one day and she joined the queue for the bus that went in the direction of my grandmother's house, Jackie waited in an adjoining queue for the bus that passed our street. True. My mother said he kept trotting down to her queue to stare at her quizzically, <laughs> as if trying gently to suggest that she had lost her marbles. The bus for our house came first, and Jackie got on it. Standing briefly on the platform as it pulled away and staring back before retiring to his reserved seat under the stairs. My mother couldn't swear to it, but she thought he might have been shaking his head at her. <laughs> Badly wounded in a dogfight, he lay in a blanket without anaesthetic and let my father stitch him together with very fine fuse wire. Not a sound. He healed well. When he reached an agonized old age and my father finally took him to the vet, Jackie lay watching my father with what looked like affection till the last sleep came. I suspect my father whimpered a bit, but Jackie didn't. He was a philosopher to the end. Jackie loved my father and my father treated him like a dog. That was the point. To treat a dog as if it is just a funny-shaped person with a very severe speech impediment <laughs> is a kind of decadent colonialism, like trying to convert a happy native from, native from his natural life to the dubious joys of civilized neurosis. Jackie may have had a kind of genius, but it was a genius he could only express in his own ways which included shoving his nose up very unsavory places and leaving little messages in urine all over the place and fighting other dogs and going on the hunt for very small bitches. It was what he did. He was a dog. So, if we ever feel like getting a psychiatrist for our dogs, maybe we should get one for ourselves first. It should at least help us to realize that our need may be greater than theirs, that it may be our sense of us which is the problem not the dog's sense of itself. Remember, Jackie, I know I will.
Ladies and gentlemen, we're slightly over time, but what a marvellous way to overrun. Um, can I just say that the Lady Lil books, as I, as I pointed out a little while ago, the, 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 the trilogy's been published. They'll be available in the book signing tent, as indeed will Mr. McIlvany. The First Minister is going back to the bit of his day job that he's still got to do even when he's on holiday. Would you thank both of them, please? First Minister, Willie McIlvany. Thank you.